0: Hello and welcome back to The Numbers Don't Lie. My name is Paul Bergowitz and in lieu of our regular host, Scott Peter Smith, I will be guiding you through this week's episode where we aim to put the data around local politics back in its place front and center. I'm in studio this afternoon with Dr. Stimbil Mberte and I'm so excited because I've been waiting a while to get her in studio. Thanks so much for coming in Stimbil. Thank
1: you for having me. Oh,
0: you're most welcome. So, a little bit about the good doctor's uh, qualifications and credentials. Dr Mbet is a lecturer in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of Pretoria, where she lectures in international relations. That's where you got your PhD, isn't
1: it? Yes, that's what I got my PhD in, yeah, Uh, writing about the UN Security Council.
0: Yes, so you specifically looked at uh, two periods from 2007, 2008, 2011, 2012. More specific to the kind of political discussions and themes that we're looking at, you've also written about the EFF. You've also covered other areas.
1: Yes. um, What ended up being pretty interesting, so my, my work research has open on South African politics and elections and a lot of the work actually that the UN Security Council does in post-conflict situations or in places where they have peacekeepers is organise elections so there is a weird kind of synergy between the two which is great and that what we're here to talk about is my South African research which is on elections political parties especially opposition parties so I have researched the EFF and the DA
0: Wonderful, because we're going to hopefully talk a little bit about the EFF today, and uh, maybe also the DA, Mm -hmm. insofar as we look at the the recent elections that we've held to work two weeks ago and the split between the national and the provincial shares of the vote because uh-huh. that's very topical. Yes. We talk about people voting strategically. Uh, we talk about, well, here at Tissot, we talk sometimes about the Peter Bruce effect, <laughs> whether the good former editor of the Business Day when he spoke about people giving their national vote to the ANC, whether that call was heeded by the suburban voters that traditionally vote for the DA. And we can talk about the evidence there. We've got some pretty Uh maps which don't translate that well into radio, but we we can talk about some of the things that we've been looking at.
1: No, that's brilliant. Yeah. The maps are awesome. Thank you. And they provide a really good way of making sense of all of the numbers, right? Because I'm not normally a numbery person. Um, I'm more a word person, but the pretty pictures are really great for making sense of the numbers. So I'm looking forward to talking about that.
0: Wonderful. So it is, I mean, this podcast leans very heavily towards the numbers, but we try not to valorize the numbers. We try not to make them do all the heavy lifting and ignore the narrative, the interpretation of what's going on. So let's dive in. We talked, th- the one theme that I want to look at today is what was the split between the national and the provincial shares uh-huh. for the major party, specifically the DA. Uh-huh. And what we've seen from the maps is a continuation of a trend spotted in 2014. We've spoken about it in an earlier episode of this podcast when we looked at the DA. Uh-huh. We had um, uh, Sikonati Mantantasha in He he's, um He's a writer for the Financial Mail. And I guess the the subtext was, will Musi keep his job? We don't Uh know yet if he's going to (laughs) keep his job. But what was spotted, and it's a continuation of the trend, is that the DA in most of the country tends to get a larger share of the national vote than the provincial vote, with the exception of the Western Cape and Gauteng. Uh And there's a very clear split there. We looked at the maps together. So, I guess my question is, I don't know if you can answer it, is the split we've seen, is this continuation of the trend for the DA, because voters in Gauteng and the Western Cape have decided to, I guess erstwhile voters of other parties, specifically the ANC, have they decided to give their provincial vote to the DA, or have former DA voters decided to give their national vote to another party?
1: OK, I think there's two trends that we can see here. So if we look from 2014 to 2019, so if we look at the pattern uh, of uh, voters in the Western Haven and giving their vote to the DA uh, at provincial level in those provinces, more than they have done at the national level, you know, one of the... Part of the DA's growth strategy was we will govern, is good governance, we'll govern uh, without corruption, and we'll govern efficiently, which is one of the reasons why the DA tends to do so well in local government elections. Is that the first place that they wanted to test that was in uh, governing the Cape Town municipality, but then uh, even here in Gauteng, um, you know, governing and I and the name of the municipality, Midval. Mid-Val. Right. Um, and so that's how the DA was trying to build itself up, right? Yes. And t- also targeting things that middle class people, whether they're black or white or Indian or colored or whatever, care about the potholes, traffic lights, um, that it's clean on the side of the road, and so that's what's increase the DA's share of the vote at local government level, but you also see it at provincial level. So then showing that it could govern at a provincial level in the Western Cape and around the things that are provincial competencies, the hospitals, um, you know, education. And that's the kind of thing that's an easy sell to the middle class generally, regardless of race. It's on the contentious national policy things like BEE or affirmative action or land or
0: uh, a social safety net or through the A social
1: safety net that the DA, I think, has found it difficult to translate. It's a middle class black vote into national votes as well. So I think that that would explain um, part of the dynamic that we saw in 2014 in terms of that split. And there's some of that going on in 2019. The other thing that's going on in 2019 is what you've described as the Peter Bruce effect, right, which was the sense. And we heard when we the the. Polls, I mean, as dodgy as some of them were before the election, indicated that the ANC's popularity was far lower than Cyril Ramaphosa's popularity as president. And you actually saw the ANC play to this in that last week or two before the election, um, where they had the posters going up saying Ramaphosa for president yes. uh, instead of just like vote ANC. Right. So because of his popularity, um, I think that they are people who voted for the ANC who wouldn't have otherwise voted for the ANC or people that were traditional voters of the ANC. So in Gauteng I think we will have seen this. People who are traditional voters of the ANC who are fed up with the ANC as a party and certainly fed up with the provincial government and the dynamics and so would have given their vote to the DA or the EFF but still voted ANC nationally because they wanted Soromaposa as president. And so there's two dynamics. I think there's one of traditional of people that would have voted Voted for the ANC in the past, but were fed up and didn't want to this time round. And so voted for the DA for the things that affect their daily lives. Um, and then for Sri Ramaphosa nationally. And then certainly traditional DA voters. Uh, so white, middle class, generally older, who wanted Cyril to be president and who also wanted the stability that that would bring. Um, who and who are not sure about the direction that the DA is taking, that have voted for the ANC to vote for Cyril um, and then voted for the DA in the province.
0: I must say, I find the narrative quite compelling Mm. and I tend to agree with you in most of the analysis. What confounds the, uh, giving a definitive answer is that Turnout overall, and we'll get to turnout in a bit, hopefully. Turnout was lower in this election across the board. <laughs> we we look even ward by ward or area by area, province by province. The same areas, well, let's park the, the, the breakdown of turnout for now. But let me go back to some of the evidence we've had from 2014 we don't today i don't today have a definitive answer for you from the numbers i need to delve into them a bit more a little bit of a (laughs) cop-out but what we saw in 2014 Particularly in the Western Cape, when we go back to this national versus provincial share of the vote, the split for the DA. And remember, 2014 was before a lot of the trouble. Before mm-hmm. the DA had managed to alienate uh, a portion of its uh, more conservative mm-hmm. voters who went to the Freedom Fund+. Plus, we saw that the DA was gaining provincial over national share of the vote in the Western Cape, sometimes by as much as two, three, four, even more than five percent, mm-hmm points. Mm -hmm. Suggesting people voted strategically for the DA for the reasons you spoke about. People wanted to, they they, they trusted the party in terms of service delivery, education and healthcare, Mm -hmm. provincial competencies. And maybe some of those Western Cape voters were erstwhile ANC voters and they still voted for the ANC on a national Mm -hmm. level. There is other evidence which supports another point you made that People who vote ANC nationally, who who split their vote, are doing so because of an ideological bent, uh, because of uh, a long-term loyalty to the ANC, or because of those national policies. Mm. There there was research done, I forget the name of the the research department, but it's out of the University of Johannesburg, Mm. that suggested that people vote for socioeconomic reasons, not always for political reasons, and that one of the reasons people voted for the ANC was because of a fear of losing social grants. Mm -hmm. So um, what we call a risk-averse, more um, negatively motivated uh, voting pattern. And and let me unpack that, meaning that people were voting for the ANC and linking that to the the, um, receipt of grants. Mm -hmm. There was a very high correlation between ANC voter sentiment and whether the person being polled was a grant recipient. And when I say negative, I mean that People were more worried that voting for another party other than the ANC would le- lead to a loss of the grant that they currently mm-hmm. received than that they were voting for the ANC out of gratitude for right. the grant they received. Right. And, and, and this is pretty standard economic or behavioral uh, economics theory that people are risk averse. They're more worried about um, the They feel the pain of a potential loss more than they feel the gain of a a potential gain.
1: And certainly the DA, which actually advocates a basic income grant, for example, has does does very little around election times to actually highlight its social policy and its mm. welfare policy in mm. that way right uh, so uh, you don't hear the DA at election time speaking about social grants or that would want to expand um, them instead there is a rhetoric of uh, social grants as a problem there's too many people on mm. social grants mm. there's not enough people you know and they would create a job in every home instead of uh, instead of having more people on social grants so uh, there 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 is also a dynamic of the communication that parties um, make. I just want to make a last point about the Western Cape. And I hate racial census views of South African elections because I do think that people uh, vote beyond race or certainly um, most not-white people vote beyond race. Um, And you can see a greater diversity of of electoral behaviour. However... the Western Cape. Let us also not forget that the other dynamic that would cause the ANC split at a national and provincial level, so where more people would vote for the ANC nationally than provincially, is the dynamics between black people and coloured people in the Western Cape, uh, particularly the Western Cape ANC. So um, some of the uh, very uh, negative and combative rhetoric that was coming from some uh, ANC leaders against the coloured community in the Western Cape had really stuck and and it's one of the things that has really um, affected the ANC's growth in the Western Cape in the past, what, eight years um, now. And so people would vote, so people who were traditionally ANC voters in the Western Cape um, and coloured people would want to vote for at national level to maintain the ANC's policies, but want to punish the ANC at a provincial level um, for the kinds of divisions that it's been stirring.
0: In other words, the mirror image of the Peter Bruce effect.
1: Yeah.
0: ANC voters leaving the party provincially rather than coming to it nationally, maybe. Yeah. That's very interesting. I want to make one point, Uh, again, in agreement. I guess we need to be more controversial. I must find something to fight with you about. But the point is well made that you make that voters aren't monolithic blocks. Mm. We've said this before. We don't have exit polling, so we don't really get to refine and stratify um, subdivisions of the so-called white vote, the so-called colored vote, the so-called black African vote. But... In a country where demographically black Africans make up over 80% mm-hmm. of the population and a similar percentage of, of the electorate, it was always going to be a bit fatuous to refer to the black vote. Mm-hmm. As we said, there's breakdowns. And we've we've seen, you know, when we look at the numbers that, for example, the EFF as a party appeals to people not on the basis of population group but on the basis of home language Mm -hmm. or province of origin. We saw that in 2014 a little bit as well. We've we've got um, the turnout.
1: Turnout is interesting. Uh, So I... At the election time, uh, during the as the results were coming out and we're at the results operation centre and um, turned to one of my colleagues, Lukwana uh, Mguni, and I said, and looking at the turnout, at the vote turnout percentage and that the two provinces with the highest turnout were Gauteng and Western Cape and the two with the lowest turnout were Northwest and Limpopo. And uh, just based on the demographic of um, the populations of Gauteng, the Western Cape, compared to Limpopo and Northwest, I said to him, oh my goodness, this looks like an urban election, that you had higher levels of turnout in urban areas than you had in rural areas. And... That is interesting to me because so often, when we talk about the low turnout story, uh, the image, I think, in many people's minds, and particularly when talking about young people and low turnout is young black males in a township for example Um, but there is something here it seems to me um, about uh, either barriers to turning out in rural areas or disgruntlement about turning out that is turning people away uh, from the electoral system and looking at your pretty maps it seems like there's some justification of that
0: justification So first, thank you. They are very (laughs) pretty, and and we'll talk about them because one thing I've noticed is that the very same areas that had lower turnout in the 2014 national and provincial elections have cropped up again in 2019. Broadly speaking, and I think they map onto rural areas, there's a big chunk in the northeast part of Limpopo, not as high, I think not really mainly in the northernmost district of the Capricorn district, but the area around Vuhani. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll go back and look at those as well. The very rural part of the northwest, right in the western part of the province that borders uh, Botswana, and most of the eastern part of the Eastern Cape. A lot of the wards around Mtata Uh and then moving up towards KZN. Uh So you mentioned the possibility of of barriers Uh and the two which spring to mind are adverse weather on the day. Uh So we saw this in 2016. We saw that in Nelson Mandela Bay metro, for example, there were very bad storms. And that partly could explain the poor turnout in traditionally ANC wards, because those wards are um, peri-urban, characterized by informal settlements precarious living conditions and people who on the day were rebuilding and securing their shacks rather than going out Mm. to vote. The other barriers to voting or obstacles that we'd see in rural areas are perhaps long traveling distances and traveling times to voting stations because we're talking about uh, low population density, very big geographical areas people have to travel a, a long way. But there's also the issue of disgruntlement and voter apathy. Mm. And I think if we looked more closely, we, we, we might do that at a later stage. That not – if it were just a, a rural versus urban split, we would imagine that we would see low turnout across all rural areas. Mm. And I'm not sure that we've seen that.
1: Yeah. Mm. I think the other thing is, you know, it, the Eastern Cape and that part of the Eastern Cape you were talking about – is the part of the country that had uh, ad hoc or Temporary uh, election voting stations uh, that were bought by the IEC, so tents basically, yes. because the existing municipal infrastructure, whether it was the school or the town hall, wasn't sufficient to have uh, to use as a voting station. Didn't meet the IEC's requirement. So that indicates also the levels of service delivery in um, in some of those places, and so. You know explain some of what may be going on with people about saying, "No, actually, why should I participate uh, if there are low levels of of delivery or an unhappiness with the political um, leaders or the political class in those places
0: so let me get, see if I'm getting you right. We're suggesting that the temporary structures, um, tents rather than you know bricks and mortar voting stations is more of a symptom and, and something that's correlated with voter apathy and low turnout rather than the cause of low turnout. It's not that we've got tents in place and therefore it's harder for people to make it to those voting stations. Maybe they don't know about them because they're temporary structures or maybe um, there's less shelter from the elements so it's more unpleasant waiting in line?
1: So I think there were both of those. So, I mean, some of those tents that I talk about got blown away in the wind, right? So literally physically made it difficult for people to vote. Right. Uh, but the fact that they were necessary in the first place, I think, is indicative of particular conditions in those places um, that could uh, explain why people just chose to stay away. And so this is another, we know we were just talking earlier about differentiating between different types of voters and not just using the sort of racial racial census view. Uh, And one of the things I think is that we know in many other parts of the world that when people feel like the system doesn't work for them, they check out of the system rather than participate and try to change it. And I think that, and we've heard a lot about uh, young people not registering to vote and that they are they're checking out of the system and seeing that there are other ways to be politically active like protests and other things. But I think that there's a conversation to be had in that relation also with rural areas that they clearly are in certain parts of the country rural voters that are choosing to not participate in the system rather than to participate and it would be interesting to figure out why
0: well in the absence of good exit polls where we get to break down and stratify turnout by age we do have from the iec we do know and and i think this this might explain a bit of the stereotype mm. that you you might you have been decrying, that uh, um, voter apathy is typified by young urban male voters. It's true that women vote in greater numbers and at greater rates at all ages than men. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of validity in in that stereotype. I mean, we shouldn't feed it too much. <laughs> the, the joke goes, you know, say what you will about stereotypes. They're a great time, a great time saver, yeah. but we don't want to go there too much. What I want to say about turnout and the broader demographic story, and you raised this issue of the urban versus the rural vote. If we go back a couple of elections to 2004 to 2009, you see that in provinces like the Northwest, specifically the Northwest, but also Limpopo to a smaller degree, the ANC carried those provinces with close on 80% of the vote. Yeah. Now the ANC is still comfortably carrying northwest, but it's more like uh, they're getting a, th- their share of the votes in the mid-60s. Uh-huh. And of course, again, it's confounded by the fact that there's a lower turnout. Mm. So the ANC is winning the rural areas with uh, smaller m- majorities and I mean there's many reasons for that I think the Northwest story is also a story about the EFF's growth (laughs) and um, dissatisfaction in specific areas in the Northwest but it's also that the urban vote is becoming more and more important Uh Uh, about 40% of the country's population lives in just the eight metros. Mm-hmm. So that's a big piece. And voter turnout is much higher in those areas for, for reasons we spoke about, that it's easier to get to the polls, that uh, possibly uh, there's less voter apathy because service delivery is better and people are more engaged. So my contention, my thesis is, is that the... Uh, the the strategy, let's call it under the Zuma years of of the the ruralitarian strategy, mm-hmm. is is a it's a dead end strategy, and I don't think it's one that the ANC is really actively pursuing.
1: Yeah, no, it is a dead end strategy, and the other thing is that it also then indicates that we can expect more comp- we can expect a greater level of competition in our elections going forward, because if People being urbanized and having greater access to services, uh, and even if the services may be poor, so that the issue that they have then is a relative deprivation one, right, that I want better services, not necessarily I want any services, then people will be more willing to give and take their vote from political parties Uh, and so we i think also with an urbanized uh, electorate that is more street savvy we can expect a bit more competition going forward
0: I think we are seeing that competition even more in rural areas. I think it's it's not a coincidence that the ANC really got its most uh, um, the it's it lost in most of the of the provinces, but the biggest magnitude was in KZN. Mm-hmm. Now that's that's interesting and it's not just the Zuma factor. Dr. stem Stembele, there's so much more I want to chat about. We've run out of time. The time has just flown. We're going to definitely need to get you in again. Yes. Because there is so much more. And
1: to we must best. keep having election conversations. One of my big frustrations is that we talk about elections or we talk about democracy around the election. And so what that means is that we're not having this conversation on a day-to-day kind of basis and how it affects our lives generally so that, that um, the, com- the level of comfort with the information just isn't seeping down to people. And people should be comfortable and know about their democracy and how it functions. And so we must keep having these conversations.
0: Well, yeah. let me just with the parting shot and to close off there's um, here's a teaser for you and maybe something we can talk about in the future there's some good information that's being published by the parliamentary monitoring group around the attendance of MPs in yes. uh, subcommittees and standing committees now that we've got our sixth Parliament, sworn in or about to be sworn in and and we've got all these freshly minted mps and some old ones i think we can start to track them on a month-to-month basis and see who's actually attending parliament and who is doing the hard work that they're getting paid what about 1.3 million at the moment annually
1: Exactly. And what I will promise to do, I'm going to regret this, I'm sure, but I'm going to promise
0: well, to got is to
1: write something on why it's important for MPs to come to Parliament and why those committee processes are important. The most important job your Parliament actually does is not Hekel Zuma in the National Assembly. It is those committee meetings. And so I'll write an explainer about what happens there, and then we can track it.
0: Wonderful. And some more pretty pictures. Yes. Thank you so much for coming in uh, and being our guest on this edition of The Numbers Don't Lie. If you would like to have a look at the maps that we've been talking about in this podcast, and I know I've been saying that I wish we had the maps and they don't translate into radio, but they are available for you. If you click on the link below this podcast, it will take you to the maps themselves, which are publicly available, or to our articles that we've written for Tiso Blackstar, where the maps are embedded. The maps are also interactive, meaning that you can zoom in, you can pan across, and you can click on any ward for any specific map and information will pop up that is specific to that map and to that theme which will tell you a little bit more about what you're looking at.
1: You've been listening to Final Take, a multimedia live production from the Tissot Blackstock Group, publishers of the Sunday Times, Business Day and Financial Mail.